Good morning. We are grateful that you are here this morning. We're thankful for your presence. We're thankful for the attendance of each one, both our members and our visitors. As we usually try to remind you, we do have a full day uh, planned a, a lot for our kids. For our last leaders program, we'll be having Bible Bowl practice between services and then something after our second service this afternoon. But we'd love for you to be a part of any or all of our day. We'll stay and have lunch here in just a few moments together if you'd like to be a part of that and enjoy a time of fellowship. And then we'll have our 1.30 service. If you have a bulletin and you've looked at the outlines, then you'll notice we're going to be talking about a song, a song that's well known by many, but looking not only at the lyrics, but also at the history of the song and the writer of it, and we hope that you can be back and be a part of our service this afternoon. It's not often that I get to say it, but I'm going to ask you to turn to page number one in your Bible, page number one, and as Bob said, he had a lot of announcements and he had even more because we've got several cards that we want to share this morning. So while you're turning to page number one of your Bible there, I wanted to share a few of these with you. It's usually uh, better to share them on Sunday morning when lots of folks are here as uh, there are folks that want to give thanks to you. And so we have a few here that we want to make mention of. Uh, the first one's from Esther Card. As Bob said, he had talked with Esther and she was not uh, feeling or is feeling some better now. But she says, thank you for all the cards and prayers. I'm doing much better and I'm thankful to be a part of the Saudi church. That's from Esther Card. We have three others here that we wanted to make mention of. One is from Debbie Smith, who is Frankie Cox's daughter. She says, Saudi congregation, thank you for your calls, visits, flowers, and prayers during the loss of my mother, Frankie Cox, and my brother, Andy Cox, who had died just a week or two before Miss Frankie. Continued prayers are appreciated. Sincerely, Debbie Smith. We also received a card from uh, Steve and... Charles, I'm going to forget Steve's last name now from the Greater Chattanooga Christian Services as well. Steve Grubb. Many of you know Steve Grubb. I couldn't think of his last name. But Steve now is in charge of the GCCS, the Christian Services, Counseling Services that we support. We usually send them a large contribution at the end of the year. They usually ask for a Thanksgiving Day offering. We don't necessarily ask you to give specially on that day, but our elders make a contribution to the services there. We try to remind you from time to time about the good work they do, offering up counseling services for, uh, of course, all sorts of people, young children, uh, teenagers, and also adults. Uh, but Steve sends a card on behalf of the GCCS and says a huge thanks to you for your recent support on behalf of GCCS. Our budgeted goal was exceeded thanks to sacrifices made by congregation like yours. May God continue to bless you. And then we had one more, and it's from Hannah Colley and her children. She said, Dear Saudi family, thank you to everyone who came on our moving day to help us unload the U-Haul. Your time and energy, not to mention your muscle, was deeply appreciated. I'll never stop being grateful for the love and overwhelming kindness you've shown to me and my children since we came to Saudi. So thankful for all of you. Love, Hannah Colley and children. They're not with us today. Eliza got sick in the middle of the night, started running a fever, so Hannah's taking care of her this morning, but we uh, wanted to read all of those cards and appreciate you bearing with me for just a moment there as we do that. We started a series a couple of weeks ago that we're calling Sunday School Catch-Up. The idea, of course, that for some people who become Christians later in life, they look back on things that they feel like they should have known, that sometimes the preacher says, oh, everybody knows Joseph. Everybody remembers Abraham, and some people say, no, I really don't. Maybe I became a Christian when I was much older, and I don't remember exactly what the details are of some of these stories. And so it might be helpful for us to kind of work our way through some of these things, in particular in the Old Testament. Why? We asked the question a couple of weeks ago, why would we do that? Paul, of course, gives us the answer in Romans chapter 15. In verse 4, when he says that whatsoever things that were written aforetime or before were written for our learning, for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. You see, I can look back at the things in the Old Testament in my Bible and I can take comfort and I can have hope. We're going to see that in the very beginning, of course, here this morning, but we know that it's something that can encourage us and guide us, and no one should be ashamed to think back and say, well, you know, I'm having trouble recalling whatever that might be. I shared with you that the plans are for this to become a book, not, not by me, but by someone else, and, and in asking for suggestions, someone commented on this author's post and said, my husband was baptized, I think, in his 30s, and he felt like he needed to go back to the junior high class always to try to remember some of those things. So we want to do that and to think about that over the course of this year. 
We're going to take some Sundays off to do various things. In the next couple of weeks, we plan to have a, a short series on prayer. When we get into February and March, we're going to have a series on Ezra and Nehemiah, as we usually try to focus on whatever our kids are studying for the Bible Bowl. So we'll take a look at Ezra and Nehemiah. But I want us to focus on this throughout the year to encourage ourselves. You may have heard of a thing called before that, that's called recency bias. The idea that sometimes we get caught up in what has just happened. I mentioned this with my college age and young adult class a few moments ago and, and when we had class, but we said that sometimes we look at our world and we say homosexuality is the worst it's ever been. Or we say divorce is, is the worst that it's ever been. And we don't take into account what's happened in the past and we live in the now and we think that what's happening now is the most important or it's the biggest or it's the best or it's the worst in one, in one way or another. You know, one issue that we have with our Bibles, and it's not a God issue, but it's kind of a human issue, is that when we look at our Bible history, there's not just a clear, firm timeline. Now, understand what I'm saying. There is a timeline for sure. It's just not clear and concise when you read Scripture. You can note from the title of our lesson, if you have a bulletin, that it's not always smooth as you read that everything flows perfectly through the Bible. Right? I don't turn 10 pages and every 10 pages is a year. Or I don't, don't turn to the New Testament in my Bible right here and think, oh, that's the middle. Right? We don't read through it and it doesn't flow perfectly. I know that every Bible is different in the size of the print and the pages. But in my Bible, as I put for you in the title this morning, my Bible is six pages and about 1,600 years in the beginning. Now, I know you're going to have a hard time reading all of this small print, but this is a little chart that you can find from our friends at Answers in Genesis. Answers in Genesis is the group that has made the Creation Museum and also built the Ark up in Kentucky. They do a lot of good biblical work. We don't agree with them, of course, on matters of salvation, but they do a lot of good things when it comes to looking at the world with a biblical worldview. This is a chart that says at the beginning, God created everything, Genesis 1 and 2, and then the total time from creation, so there's a zero. Now, we're going to get to genealogies in a minute, but this is ba mainly based on all of these genealogies, and a lot of them in Genesis chapter 5, to where you come down to the bottom, it says that the flood started when Noah was 600. And so all of those numbers added together based on the genealogies is about, this says 1,656. But we'll round down and say 1,600 years. I was trying to find it quickly here, but for me, that's that. 1,600 years right there, just in those few short pages. So we obviously don't have time to go year by year through 1,600 years. But here's a, a brief breakdown that you can see. And I thought it'd be a good place for us to start this morning as we consider Sunday school catch-up. And, and as I mentioned before, I don't have every lesson laid out for the rest of the year. So if you have any suggestions or ideas or something or someone in particular that you'd like for us to consider, please, by all means, catch me and, and let me know, and we'll try to do that. To begin this morning, we want to look at about six different uh, things from the main chapters here in the book of Genesis. Question to begin, an honest question. Can you name the days of creation? Maybe the better question is, could you do it if you remember the song, right? Most of us look at the song and think about the song, and then we can name the days of creation. Now, this is something else from Answers in Genesis. I liked it. I wanted to share this because across the bottom are days 1 through 6, 1 and 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. At the top is what many in the world consider. The Big Bang, 15 billion years ago. The stars, 10 billion years ago. The sun, 5 billion years ago, and so on and so forth. But can you, or would you be able to, name and go through the days of creation? There's probably different versions of that song, but like many things, songs help us to remember. And again, from the page on Answers in Genesis about creation, day one, light. God separated the light from the darkness. If you opened up your Bibles there, I'll mention some of the verses to you, but verses three through five, day one. Day two, God gave form to the earth in a sense. He, he made clouds and skies so blue on day two, as we often sing. Verses six through eight. Day three, 
Verses 9 through 13, land and plant life. Day 3, flowers and grass and trees. Day 4, we might say the objects in outer space, sun, moon, and stars. Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 19. Day 5, of course, is sea creatures and birds, birds and fish alive on day 5, verses 20 through 23 in creation. And day 6, land animals and man. Verses 24 through 31, God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. And of course, it's not usually included. This has just got six pictures on it here. But you think about it when we think about chapter one of the book of Genesis and creation. But moving over into chapter two, even we see Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. I think it's impossible for us to fathom the power of the words in the beginning God. I appreciate Charles, as many of our song leaders do, and asking what the sermon topic is going to be and trying to pick out songs. I don't know if how great thou art is as close as it comes, but when we consider the power of Genesis chapter one in creation, when we consider the idea of what God has done, there may not be much else we can say, but how great thou art. I think it's verse two that we were singing together that speaks about the mountains, that speaks about the trees, that causes us to look around and think about this beautiful world. I know that we are all thankful for this part of the world, for this beautiful country, for the valleys, for the mountains, for the water, and for so many wonderful things. In the beginning, God. There's so much that we could take time to study as we think about that phrase, but Genesis chapter 1 is about creation. And again, it spills over into chapter 2 as God takes this moment of rest. Can I even say maybe a moment of pleasure as he looks at what he has done. You've been there, right? We all have. Whether it be some kind of handiwork, maybe for you men around the house, or, or even some of you women, or, or something else that you've created. And you stop, and you look at what you've done, and you take pride in it. And you rest from that, and you look at it, and it is good. And that doesn't even touch the hem of the garment of what God does in creation. We move to Genesis chapter 2, and we might say the word is life. Life. There is beautiful life in the garden. I like to think personally that it was beauty beyond compare, more than we can ever imagine. There is beautiful life in the garden. There is God's simple instructions in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's beautiful life. There's God's instructions. There's even humor, right? In the very beginning, there's even humor here in Genesis chapter 2. We imagine Adam in verse 19. Do you remember? There's no help me. And God puts before Adam every living creature so that he could name them. But also, in a sense, we get the idea that Adam is looking for a help me. So it's humorous to us, right, to read that verse and to imagine Adam looking over a cow to see if that would work as a spouse. Don't do it. Don't laugh at that. That's not, that's dangerous ground, right? Adam looking at a cow thinking that maybe that would make a sufficient spouse because it never could. And so it's even humorous to think about this. And of course, then there is the beauty of marriage and a family. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23. Do you know that most of the time as a marriage is beginning, we go back to the beginning to think about how beautiful marriage should be and how wonderful it would have been in life in that garden to have the beauty of marriage and a family. Of course, we have to keep reading. And in chapter 3, we might say the word is death. Sadly, within these first few moments, these first three pages, again in my Bible, there is sin which brings forth death. You know, as I was preparing my thoughts and notes, I really wanted to say something along the lines of, 
where there is life, there is death. That's true for us. That's true today. As we honor and celebrate birth, we also mourn over death. And where there is life, there is also death. But you know, that wasn't true at first. That wasn't true right then because sin hadn't entered the world. That wasn't God's plan that where there was life, there was death. But of course, when man gets involved, things get messed up. When sin enters the world, there is death. But how amazing it is to consider in chapter 3. How amazing is it? Consider with me just a couple of small changes. First of all, we notice that Satan changes just one word, does he not? You remember we read it just a moment ago from chapter 2 and verse 16. God plainly and clearly said, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, I don't think there's any wavering. I don't think there's any question. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as we go to chapter 3, I, I don't even think personally, just, I mean, Joel's two cents, I don't even know that it was a mocking tone. You know how sometimes when maybe your parents or a parent says something and the kids kind of mock them, right? They say something about it and say, man, man, you know, they kind of mock them and whatever the instruction was. I don't even imagine that Satan was mocking God. Maybe he was, I wasn't there. But I think he was just straightforward. I think he could say exactly what God said, and without hopefully them noticing, he just leaves out one word. He says, for in the day that you eat of it, you, or he adds, excuse me, but adds one word, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall not surely die. You see, I think like some things, if he's mocking and he's bringing attention to it, they're going to catch the difference. And if they're smart, if they're going to do the right thing, they might say, wait a minute, that's not what God said. But I think in a cunning move, he might just kind of go right through it. And as he just simply adds that one little word, you shall not surely die. So we go from you will die, God's instructions, to you won't die. And have you ever considered as well one other just little thing? But that God goes from Genesis chapter 1 where he sees the things that he's made and of course, in chapter 1, verse 31, even as he's looking at everything, and he's looking at man, and he says, it is good. We go from God saying, it is good, to chapter 2 and verse 13, when God says, what have you done? It is good to what have you done. Two little changes. Both what Satan adds to the statement and then what God has to do and say to man as man has messed up. How sad it is and how awful it is. How far man has to fall and how far we are still falling in a sense today. We move on to chapter 4 though and we might say the word is first. Right? We continue in the first. There's the first life. There's the first man, the first woman, the first marriage, the first sin, all these things we've noticed. And in chapter 4, we usually say there's the first murder, the first death. But don't forget that also in chapter 4, we get the first worship. We look at it and shake our heads sometimes and we get upset and bothered by the sin that's there. But there's also the beauty in a sense, although it turns takes a negative term, but the beauty of the first worship. What do we do when we worship? Even today, what is it that we do? We bring our offering to God. Cain and Abel brought God their offering. Cain and Abel brought the first worship that we read about to God. Of course, after the first sin and man getting involved, it didn't go as it should. And there is an issue with the offering and what they're doing. And there is the first murder. But we might say chapter 4 continues in the first. We move to chapter 5 then, and we might say the word is genealogies, and I added it for you, but eh, right? We don't want to have to think about the genealogies. Now, I'm jokingly adding that because we don't want to read Genesis chapter 5 when we get there. But if I could go back, if I could bring to your memory the slide that we had at the beginning with that chart that was kind of small, that chart's only available because of chapter 5, because we look at those dates or those years. Verse 3, Adam lived 130 years. He begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. 
And it goes on and on. Seth begot Enosh in verse 6 and 7 and so on and so forth through the rest of chapter 5. Most famously, of course, chapter 5 and verse 27. All the days of Methuselah were 969 years. But we take all that while we don't enjoy reading it and we do get a sense of how long it is. We begin to get our timeline. Yeah, it's a little off as we just kind of flip from page to page. It doesn't flow smoothly across the numbers. But we have an idea from the genealogies that we read about here. Let's, of course, move to chapter 6 through 9. Because I told you we'd cover about 6 pages and 1,600 years, which is creation to the flood. We might say that chapter 6 through 9 are about Noah. Noah doesn't need much of an introduction. We'll save all the great details for the sake of time this morning. Most of the world has heard of Noah. Most of the world has heard stories of a great flood, whether they attribute it to God in the Bible or they think it might have been something else. I would invite you again, a personal invitation, just to try to go visit the ark if you've never done that. We appreciate, again, with a disagreement on matters of salvation, we appreciate so much the work that's been done there, the description and the explanation of how things could have worked, the idea of sin, the idea of what God was trying to do. And even I think it talks about in one section of the ark there as you're traveling through that great and large boat. But it talks about how many different stories there are in the world about a great flood. Different religions that don't attribute it maybe to Jehovah God, but they talk about a flood. Whether people believe in God or not, they are familiar with Noah. We think about chapter 6 and verse 5 where we see that the world is only evil continually. I'm as frustrated as you are quite often with what's going on around us. I'm as frustrated about things that we see in the news, the way it's shoved in our faces and so much sin is just laughed about or seemed to made not a very big deal. But I think what chapter 6 and verse 5 is telling us is that the world's been that way before. When man gets involved, the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. But chapter 6 and verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so we see once again in chapter 6, beginning in about verse 13, guess what there are? There are instructions. There's instructions. There's obedience. The flood, deliverance, and the covenant. I'm moving over those a little quickly because what I'd like for us to do then in the final place this morning is to look at three lessons, and all those are kind of included in what we think about when we think of Noah. You see, we just covered 1,600 years in about 20 minutes. But maybe there's some lessons that we can try to take and learn about them. We've kind of worked chapter by chapter through the first nine chapters of Genesis. We won't do that moving forward. But there are certainly some lessons that we can take and apply. Number one, God's power is almighty and always on display. We don't have time this morning to get into the nitty-gritty of creation and science and the earth and the Bible, but you know it. You've probably heard a preacher talk about it before. It's undeniable, unbelievable, amazing, cool, great, mind-blowing, whatever words you want to choose. And I would suggest that our words don't even do it justice when we think about God Almighty and His power. God breathed. God spoke the world into existence. One millimeter this way or that, and we freeze or we burn. We float in space. We're always turning. Gravity, keeping everything in check. My body and my brain perform thousands of functions, most of them without me even thinking about it. More often than not, my body can heal itself. New skin grows. And I'm sorry, but it's just unbelievable and really hard to even describe. And I'm sorry again, but... I'm going to need a little more than a small spark and a big bang and millions of years and pure chance for me not to believe that there is a Jehovah God who created this world and everything in it. God is almighty and it is beautiful to study his power in the creation. And as is suggested by our lesson here, it's always on display. I sometimes will sit and fathom at, again, just what's happening in the world around us. 
the spinning, the gravity, whatever it might be. God created it all perfectly to work together, and yet people want to not think about it or not believe in God. God's power is almighty. Number two, God's instructions are communicated and obedience is expected. Adam and Eve, they had their instructions. Their obedience was expected. Cain and Abel had their instructions. Their obedience was expected. Noah and his family had their instructions and their obedience was expected. I, I gave you three examples there. We go back to Cain and Abel because we may not know what Cain and Abel's instructions were to the detail. You know, we don't get exactly what God said to them about how to worship, but they had them. And the Lord did not respect Cain and his offering. We do not sacrifice the way that they did or that Noah did, but from the beginning, we see a precedent set by God. What is said of Noah in chapter 6 and verse 22? Thus Noah did. According to all that God commanded him, so he did. I want that said about me. Have you ever considered that? According to all that God commanded him, so Joel did. Do you want that said about you? I think you do. I know you're here today. But when we think about God's instructions, he has clearly communicated them. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit on Wednesday nights. We've been talking about the way that God has given us his word. That even through the transition of time, he's made it known his desires and he has expected obedience. Both in the Christian age in which we live today, both with his children as we think about the children of Israel, and even before that as we think about Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and Noah and his family. God's instructions are communicated and obedience is expected. Third and finally this morning, I struggled on what to call this point or this part. I couldn't settle on exactly what to say. I settled on God's covenant or covenants because there is just a lesson here about who God is and what happens when he makes a covenant. In a sense, he made a covenant with Adam. That word may not be used exactly, but as we just said in our last point, he says to Adam, I will bless you here in this garden. I will bless you. Don't eat that fruit. You do, you'll die. He did, and he died. God made a covenant in a sense with Adam. But beautifully here in Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9, we see at the end of this section of scripture that amazing covenant that we still see in the sky today. Usually we always point them out, right, to our kids or whoever's in the car with us. Look, there's a rainbow. And it's, it's kind of fun and it's kind of interesting. But most of the time we probably don't really think about. Almost 6,000 years later, we still have God's covenant with us. Do you really consider that? He made a covenant, we read about it, and we still see it today. Boy, we certainly don't have time to go through the details of God's covenants, plural, to look at the rest of it. He made a covenant with Adam, made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abram. He made a covenant with the children of Israel. He said, be my covenant people, do what I tell you to do and I will bless you. And the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7 speaks about how that first covenant, we would say that one being the one with the children of Israel, the law of Moses, that covenant had its faults. And so a second covenant was needed. And Jesus himself says in that upper room in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, this is my blood of the new covenant that is shed for many for the remission of sins. God has always had covenants. God's covenants have always been amazing. Do you know why? Because God is always true. You ever made a promise to someone that you couldn't keep, that you didn't keep? You ever made a covenant with somebody that you said you'd hold up your end of the bargain and then you didn't? The better question is, have you ever had that happen, but the only reason you didn't keep up with your end was just pure accident, pure forgetfulness, just a mistake on your part? You had every intention of doing it, but you're human, and you can't keep up with every single promise and every single covenant. Sometimes it's a natural disaster, you know? Something just happens. The item is destroyed, but you can't let the person borrow it. 
They understand that it wasn't your fault, but yet you can't keep your promise. God can. God has. God does. God will. Whatever you want to add in there. God's covenants are amazing as we think about Genesis chapters 1 through 9, but certainly all throughout Scripture. There is so much that's packed into six pages in the front of your Bible. But as we said a few moments ago, there is a new covenant under which we live. Jesus shed his blood for it. He paid the price to purchase the church. And you can be added to it. He plainly said that he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Peter, even as we've studied this morning, Peter references back to good old Noah. And says that it is baptism that doth now save us. Why not be obedient to God's instructions this morning? They are different than what he told Noah. But we can read for ourselves exactly what he has said to do. We try our best each time that we share this slide or talk about this to remind you that we would study with you as soon as possible if you want to know more. We would make time as soon as possible to help anyone understand what God has said to do in his word. Because he has told us exactly what we need to do. He's given the instructions and obedience is expected. Maybe you're here this morning and you've done that. You've been added to the church, but you've wandered away. You've struggled with something in your life. Maybe it's a sin that separated you from God. If it's of a public nature, you're more than welcome to come to the front in a moment. One of our elders will be here to receive you, to pray with you and for you. Maybe it's not of a public nature, but you'd still like the prayers of your brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage you. Maybe it's not a specific sin, but it's something that is weighing on you, a struggle, a care, or concern that you would like to share. That again, we want nothing more than to pray with you and for you. We want nothing more than to everyone, for everyone to walk out those doors right with God. We're thankful for this moment, for the song that's been selected, that through its words we might encourage you as we stand together and as we sing. Famous song, the song of invitation we're going to sing in just a few moments is... Uh, no, not one. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. And that's very popular. Of course, so is higher ground, as we said a few moments ago. But for many people, uh, count your blessings. Maybe the one that most people are familiar with. So again, if you want to keep your songbook open there, we're going to examine some of the lyrics as we make some application for our lives. Uh, one more note here about Oatman and his work. Uh, we're about to discuss what many consider to be his crowning achievement, which is count your blessings. He wrote that song around the age of 41. And while it was catching on here in the United States, it had really gained favor and popularity in the UK. A well-known English evangelist by the name of Rodney Smith is quoted as saying this about the song. In London, the men sing it, the boys whistle it, and the women rock their babies to sleep on this hymn. So when we think about the song, Count Your Many Blessings, we want to think about ourselves for just a few moments this afternoon and three main points here from the song, three maybe main themes, if you will. Number one, I think we can learn from this song that we are guaranteed trouble, are we not? When you look at the lyrics, we sing about being tempest-tossed. We sing about being discouraged. In the fourth verse, we think about being amid the conflict. And we even sing about the idea of a heavy cross. There's no doubt that we are guaranteed trouble in this life. When I look around this room and I think about each one of us, we are each one facing various trials at different points. Some of you have gone through maybe the death of your parents. Some of you may still have your parents with you. Some have faced the death of other folks, uh, loved ones. Some of you have faced various trials, but we are without a doubt guaranteed trouble and we are guaranteed to face varying levels of trouble, but it will come. As we said, if you've kept your songbook open, you see the verses just wrought with it. And as I mentioned, there's no exact uh, idea from his, the history that people know or his writings that there was one thing he was going through. And as we sang a couple of songs already, as we sang, I'll be a friend to Jesus and now count your blessings, none of those carry with it one particular theme. But have you ever felt that you could sing these words? Have you ever had this song sung in a service? Have you ever sung them at a time when you felt each beat you felt each syllable with your life. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 16 and verse 33. First of all, John 16 and verse 33. When Jesus is, is speaking here to the apostles, 
We have been talking about this on Wednesday night because it is in chapter 16 that he speaks about the Helper and the Holy Spirit. But I think with some encouraging words as well towards the end of this chapter and towards the end of this, really this speech that he's been making. If you have, if in your Bible you can see chapter 17, remember that chapter 17 is what we really consider the Lord's Prayer. Right, Most people point to, to the Sermon on the Mount as the Lord's Prayer, but this is really the prayer of Jesus in John 17. But before he begins that prayer to the Father, he says, verse 33 of chapter 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. I know that we can't hear his voice. I know that we can only do our best to imagine but I imagine that it was firm. I imagine that there was no quivering, there was no quibbling, there was no doubt. That he said it as sure as he was there in that moment. And as sure as he was that he was about to go and give his life on the cross, he said it firmly. You can have peace in me. And there was no question. He didn't need to clarify as we sometimes do. Well, hey, let, you know, it might be you guys that you're going to face some tribulation. It might be that you're going to have, well, if you do this, there's nothing, no clarification, but firmness. You will have tribulation in this world, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. As well, one other passage we might note here is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Well, Peter where Peter this time is the one writing, and he's writing still about the suffering that we might go through. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. What's he saying? Basically, when the trials come, don't scratch your head and look up at God and say, what's this that's happening? Why, why is this happening to me? He says, it's not some strange thing, but on the other hand, don't question but rejoice, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. We won't take the time this afternoon to read all the way down through verse 19, but you see the idea of verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. We shouldn't scratch our head, we shouldn't shake our fists, but we are to glorify God. Listen, I know our trials may be different. I know that we're not, we don't all go through the same exact thing, and some people face things far worse than others can imagine, but no matter what it is, we can still glorify God as we suffer. I love there verse 13, don't, don't question the end of verse 12, but verse 13, rejoice. I do find it a bit, I'm not sure what the word, best word may be, confounding to us when he says that we partake of Christ's sufferings. You know, listening to Robert this morning, when, when Robert gets emotional and he, and he talks about Jesus' death, I read what Peter says here and I think, boy, I don't face anything like that. But yet Jesus was rejected. Jesus was mocked. He was sort of that isolated in a way because he was different than everyone else. I'm not claiming that we're equal with the Son of God, but we do have an opportunity to be ridiculed or mocked or to suffer in this life if we are like Christ or do our best to suffer. And of course, again, as verse 16 says, suffer as a Christian. Don't be ashamed, but glorify God in this matter. We are guaranteed trouble. When we get our guaranteed trouble, number one, let us rejoice. And then number two, let me remind you of Something Trey said just a moment ago. I, Trey, I don't know if I've ever heard you say it before, but Trey said that we turn to God, I don't remember exactly what you said, but God, his word, and his people. I don't know if I've heard it said like that in those exact words, but it's, it struck me enough to write it in my notes real quickly as he finished his prayer. But so often in our, in our troubles, we pray about turning to God's word, and we should. That is the source of all answers, but sometimes we forget to turn to his people. He has provided his people as a way, as a help. And we should not. We, there's no way we should turn and look at our brethren and say, I, I don't need you. I'm too good for you. I, you know, don't help me. No, God has provided him and his word and his comfort. I often pray, Lord, comfort those folks as only you can. And that's true. 
Help them to turn to your word for guidance. And that's true. But he's also provided his people for trouble sometimes. And we are guaranteed trouble. We are. We still need to count our blessings. But as we're counting our blessings, number two, we can recognize that this song reminds us that some blessings are just worthless. Well, what do I mean? Do I mean the blessings that truly help us? I don't. But what does it say there in verse number three, if you still have your book open, your song book open? But what does it say? When you look at others with their lands and gold, think that Christ has promised you his wealth untold. Count your many blessings. Money cannot buy your reward in heaven nor your home on high. This thought here, point number two, is primarily from verse three. And the world often gets this backwards, and we often get this backwards. It's easy to get caught up in the world's definition of success. It is easy to put our trust, or the most trust that we have, to put it in our bank account. Or what we have physically, the amount of stuff we have, the amount of money we have. Look, I know we need to work, and we need to be able to pay our bills, and we need to be good stewards of what we've been blessed with. But it amazes me sometimes as we watch television or interviews and people talk about how blessed they are. You ever heard it? I mean, we watch, I watch sports all the time, right? Those guys at the end of the game, they'll talk about how blessed they are. And I'm not saying they don't have lots of things. They certainly, most of them have lots of money to take care of the things that they might need. That's very easy for someone to say, though, when they had a, have a lot of dollars in their bank account. And I can't read each one of their hearts. I don't mean to suggest that. But can I suggest that as I believe God says in his word, those things are really worthless in the grand scheme of things. We live in a country where we've just constantly taken on more and more. And that's sort of hard for us because everyone seems to be doing it. But those things, when we look at people's lands, when we look at their gold, when we think that money can buy not just your reward in heaven nor your home on high, but that money can buy happiness here. If we could interview Johnson Oatman Jr. and ask him about what he was thinking here, you know, I don't know, he may have been a little well off because owning his own business and that kind of thing, what he did and his family, but I think he understood whatever his situation was exactly, whatever situation his bank account was in exactly, he understood exactly what God is saying in his word. Lands, gold, money. Let's think about a few verses again as we've done. First of all, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. These first couple of references are going to come from the Sermon on the Mount there. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Jesus is giving this great discourse on so many things. But what does he say there? Pretty much almost right in the middle of it. Chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Once again, nothing wrong with having nice clothing, with having a nice house, having the things that you need to take care of your family, and being able to enjoy this life to an extent. But have you ever known someone who you could tell that they had their needs taken care of, but you also, when you looked at him, you felt like, I, I know where their treasure is. I know where their treasure is. It may be that they've got more money than me. It may be that they've got nice things. But I know where their treasure is because I know that their heart is. I know what their actions show. That's what we are talking about here. That's what Jesus is talking about. Where are we, what are we putting stock in? Also from there in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12. Matthew 5, 12, Jesus says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We get caught up in having our reward here and not in heaven. Oh, we read what Paul says, my citizenship is in heaven. We read that and we sort of nod and agree, maybe even amen, but we don't live that way. We live like our reward is here and everything that we're after is here, not what is to come. And my favorite passage about this may be 1 Peter 3, again, Peter's beautiful words, that remind us of the idea of, not 1 Peter 3, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I've got it right on the screen. I, was, I had it wrong in my notes. That's the problem. Sorry about that. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. It's right on the screen. Because he speaks about that inheritance. 
That inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It doesn't take us long sometimes, whether we're having to go through our parents' stuff or old things or clean out our house, where we recognize that things fade away. They corrupt. They don't work anymore. You know, we live in a world of technology where things are stored out there on that cloud and, and, you know, maybe it's digital or whatever. But even then, those thumb drives or our hard drives or whatever it might be, those things corrupt. They don't work anymore. And we've got issues because everything here is sort of, you know, falling away, running away, running down. And Peter says that, it gives us this example to remind us that we're looking for something that cannot compare. It is completely different. It is reserved in heaven for you who are kept, you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Is that truly the inheritance that we're after? Do we remember that the things, many of the things here are worthless? Oh, those folks, they they do, those movie stars, those athletes, they say, I am blessed. And they've got enough money and enough things to take care of their earthly needs. But a lot of those things are going to be worthless. They might help here in the short term, but not when it comes to thinking about something that is incorruptible, undefiled, and does not fade away. Our third and final point this afternoon is to remember from this song that God is always involved. He's always involved. Think about the fact that we sing, God is over all. At the end of the, or in the middle of the fourth verse, so amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. It's hard to remember that sometimes and to think about that, but James reminds us as well in James chapter 1 and verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And it comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God is over all. We sometimes say things like God has got this or God is in control. And all those things are true. Yes, both in the good and as the song says here, so amid the conflict, no matter what it may be, it may be something that's nothing to you. You sort of knock it away and say, oh, that's not a big deal. God is over all. You may say, this is the toughest situation I can think of. The hardest thing I've ever gone through. God is over all. And we need to count our blessings in those moments. The fourth verse continues on with the same thought. It says the words, angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. The Hebrew writer speaks about Jesus. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16 is speaking of the help we receive from the Son of God. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. How can we hold fast to our confession, to what we know to be true? Because Jesus has passed through the heavens. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need so amid the conflict in time of need we have someone who understands have you ever been in that situation i don't know if it's that uncomfortable moment sometimes where maybe you're grieving and someone says i understand i've been reading a book lately uh, about a, a man and his family who lost their son tragically and he talks in that book about it's about grief mainly and he talks about people coming up And how so many of those people had not buried their child. And he says, I know they're trying. I know they're wanting to give comforting words. But they certainly can't say, oh, I understand how you feel. Because they've not been through the same thing. We sometimes struggle with that. You know who we don't struggle with that with? Jesus. We don't struggle with that with our high priest. Because we're not praying. And we're not thinking about someone. We're not turning to someone for help who doesn't understand. He does. He can sympathize, and so that allows us to come boldly. I know he didn't have a smartphone. I know that the idea of pornography may not have been as prevalent. I know that some of these sins that we think are are really about our time may be a little different, but he suffered. He was tempted. He serves as our high priest. We can take comfort remembering that God is over all. And then, of course, the chorus finishes as we sing. Count your many blessings, 
Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God hath done. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 4 and verse number 6 that there is one God and Father who is above all and through all and in you all. That is the God that we serve. If you have your songbook open still there, turn to 680. This will be our song of hymn in just a moment. It will be on the screen, so if you prefer to look at the screen, that's certainly just fine. I want to ask you as we begin to conclude, though, and think about singing this song, that no, not one, there's not a friend. Have you ever written your blessings down one by one? I'm going to answer that for you and say there's a good chance the answer is no. You say, but at Thanksgiving, we always write out what we're thankful for. Sure. We always, I sit, I've sat down before and, you know, I wrote down what I'm thankful for. Sure. Have you ever named your blessings? One by one. I haven't. Because when I start talking about the air I breathe, the food, the clothes, the bed, the car, the kid, I mean, and it goes on and on. I've never written them down one by one. But I hope that you'll take that challenge as we sing that song to think about exactly what it means to count our blessings. Excuse me, I went too far there. Count your many blessings and see what God hath done. Johnson Oatman Jr. was certainly a human just like me and you. However, even if you are not an avid musician or a music fan, all of us can appreciate the beauty of lyrics, of these lyrics that help us consider our lives. Johnson Oatman simply recognized and realized a beautiful biblical truth that will ring true for all eternity, but also certainly for us until time on this earth is over. And that's the song we're about to sing. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. We're about to sing this song, this hymn, as a means of encouragement. If there's someone here who desires to put on Christ in baptism, we'll sing to encourage you, and we'll say those words that most of us have said hundreds of times. None else can heal all our soul's diseases. Come to Christ. Maybe you have put on Christ in baptism, but you've struggled to remain faithful. We'll sing to encourage you as well. We're thankful for the chance that presents itself, itself right in this moment. We're thankful for the opportunity to count our blessings and to sing about the lowly Jesus, who will be our friend through the good times and the bad. There's none like him. None else can heal all our soul's diseases. And so we sing to encourage you. Will you come to him as we stand and as we sing?